Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. We hope you find this message helpful. And at the same time, it is important to us that you know podcasts should not be a substitute for the flesh and blood people of the church. Church is more than sermons. If you aren't a part of a local church, we would love to help you find one in your area. Please don't hesitate to email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. That's sermons at borocitychurch.com. We would be happy to help. Thank you for listening. I'm going to tell you today the true stories of two different men. Both of them are named John, so I don't want you to get confused. The first John was born in 1725 in England. His mother died two weeks before his seventh birthday. When this John was 11 years old, he began his life as a sailor with his father. When he was 18, he was forced to go into the British Navy. He was caught trying to abandon ship one day, so he was stripped down to the waist, tied tied to the mast in front of the crew, and then he was beaten with a hundred lashes because he tried to escape the Navy. Following the humiliating beating, he made a plan to kill the captain and take over the ship. But he was transferred to a different ship that was headed for Africa. It was a ship involved in the slave trade. Well, John didn't see eye to eye with the captain of that ship either. So that captain sold John into slavery in Africa. In 1748, John was rescued by a search team that his father sent for him and he was returned to England. But by that point, he had seen the financial profit of the slave industry. So John became a slave trader for the next nine years of his life. Additionally, from some of the journeys that, that, uh, that he left on, we know, uh, or I'm sorry, from some of the journals that he left, we know that he also treated women poorly and outwardly rejected any sort of moral authority in his own life. In short, John lived a hard life. He lived a very dark life. And in a lot of ways, he lived a wasted life. Now, I want to tell you a story of another John. He lived around the same time as the first John, also in England. He married his childhood sweetheart named Mary. Shortly after their marriage, John and Mary adopted his two orphaned nieces. He eventually would go into the ministry, becoming an Anglican priest, where he was well known for his pastoral care and his work among the poor. Young people struggling with their faith sought his advice and would write him letters that he would humbly respond to. In fact, I have a collection of them on my bookshelf in my office and his wisdom is incredible. His letters have ministered to thousands long after his death through those letters. Influential political figures would come to him with their moral dilemmas seeking his wisdom. In 1788, he wrote a pamphlet that decried the evils of slave trade, and he joined William Wilberforce in the movement to abolish slavery in England. The law to abolish slavery passed just before he died in 1807. Now that is a beautiful story. That is a well-lived life. A man who did what was right and fought for what was good right up until his death. So that's two Johns. Two very different people, one life wasted, one life well-lived. But there's one more thing I want to tell you that you need to know about these Johns. He's the same person. The John from the first story is the John from the second story, even though in many respects, the John from the second story is very much not the John from the first story. But maybe that will help you to have a deeper understanding of one of the most familiar songs in the world, a song a song the first John could never have written, but a song the second John could only have written because he was the first John first. And it goes like this. Amazing grace, 
how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Let me ask you this. If you looked at John Newton when he was 30 years old, making a fortune off human trafficking, using women as objects for his pleasure, denying that he had any moral responsibility to anybody at all. Could you have seen it? Could you believe the story of the second John that he would become? Would you really believe that he's the guy who would be faithful to his wife, adopt orphans, care for the poor, be a mouthpiece of the grace of God and fight to abolish slavery all the way to his dying breath? I gotta tell you, I don't know if I would have ever seen it coming. But that's what makes the grace of God so amazing. And that's why it's so sweet because it flows into such bitterness. When a wretch becomes a beauty, when a blind person sees, when forgiveness and redemption come to those who don't deserve it, that's what grace is. That's when you really start to forget yourself and worship the God of amazing grace. There was nothing about John Newton's early life that left him deserving of anything other than death. He was a despicable person. But God had a better vision for John Newton, a better vision than even John Newton had for himself. Here's the thing, though. He didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I think I'll be a better person. I'll just commit to it. I'll just do it. In fact, his conversion was really a result of being plunged into darkness. It started when he was alone on a ship in a storm when he prayed to God for mercy. When his life was finally out of his hands, when he lost control, is when he finally began to open his eyes up to the undeserved favor, the grace of God. Today, I want to show you what to look for in your own life and the lives of others when it comes to amazing grace. Today, I want to show you four phases of the way that God changes people from 1 John's to 2 John's. It's not exactly the same for everyone, but there are some versions of these four stages or four phases of experiencing God's grace in every life that Jesus changes. So I want you to see if you can recognize any of these in yourself. My hope today is that you will see a testimony of what God has done and is doing in your life or that you will see them happen very soon. So now let's look at the most dramatic life change in the Bible. A change so dramatic that the writers of scriptures didn't even let this guy keep the same name. As you see, you know, how confusing it can be. First John, second John, there's like Saul. All right, you're gonna go by Paul. So let's look at what happened when the amazing grace of Jesus changed Saul the murderer into Paul the apostle. All right, so District 46ers, are you with me? All right. I think it's page number 1410 in your new Bible. Page number 1410. We're going to go to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 1 through 19 today in the New Testament. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we're still giving those away free. Except this time, they're located out of here at the info desk just beyond that wall. You just stop in there and get you a free Bible that is yours to keep and read. In the meantime, this will be on the screen behind me. But I always encourage you to have an open copy of God's Word in your lap so that you can go back and forth. And sometimes you can notice things and circle things. So stay with me there. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 19. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The man Uh, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he's praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house He placed his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road that you were traveling has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And after taking, uh, uh, excuse me, at once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. And that is the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 9. You know, today marks a big change for our church. A new building, in many ways, this is a fresh start. This is kind of like the start of a new era for our church. So in honor of that, over the next two Sundays, I want to remind you of what we are about at City Church. What we won't lose in this fresh start, but what I am praying the Holy Spirit renews in us and stokes the embers of into a flame. In 2016, we saw what God was doing in our church and we committed ourselves to this mission statement, that City Church will multiply gospel change for broken people on purpose. So next week, we're gonna focus on the multiply and on purpose part of that. Today, through this text, we're gonna focus on the gospel change for broken people. And tonight, at our celebration cookout, our baptism trough is gonna be filled with water. And I'm praying that many of you today will hear the call of God this morning in this service. And at the end of this service, you will start a new life with Jesus. And like Saul in this text, you will answer Jesus's call and be baptized tonight. So first, let's see the way that Jesus changes you. And I want to see if you can recognize God's amazing grace coming for you. The way it came for John Newton and the way it came for Saul. Okay, I'm going to give you four of these today, and just in case I need to pull the ripcord, it may only be three if I see my time running out, okay? I might abandon ship on the four. So if you get confused, just know, all right? Also, if you see me tapping my phone a ton, it's so that my timer doesn't go off, okay? All right, District 46ers, okay? You can write down these four words, crash, darkness, embrace, and overflow, all right? Crash, darkness, Embrace and overflow. Those are the four things we're going to cover. And don't worry, if I don't get to the fourth one, 
We're going to roll it into next week, okay? These are the four stages of how Jesus changes us. So when I get to each of these points, crash, darkness, embrace, and overflow in the sermon, you can say amen, or you can say I hear you, okay? And then write that point down in your notes. And if any adults want to help with that, you guys can learn that too, how to talk back. It's a new era, City Church. You can talk back to me. And soon we'll have sound, pedals, uh, sound panels up in here that absorb the sound. So this might be your only Sunday to really hit that echo on an amen, all right? So we're just going to try it right now with point number one. When Jesus changes you, it starts with a crash. There it is. I love it. A woo is good too, all right? Later on in the book of Acts, Saul who later becomes Paul or is known as Paul, gives a first-person testimony of his encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. All right, look at this in Acts 26. He's telling his story now to some other people. He says, we all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic. It's a language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. All right, now a goad is a long stick that farmers would use to prod oxen when they were plowing a field. So when the oxen would stop or when the oxen would try to turn in a different direction, the goad would bother them and get them moving. So I've got a picture of it up here. I just drew this freehand this morning real quick. <laughs> um, no, it's an ancient picture. So you can see that long stick up there. That long stick is the goad, and it's kind of a prod that's used like, hey, get back. We're, go we, we're going somewhere here. I want to make sure you move. We can't just sit here all day, all right? So here's what the resurrected Jesus was saying to Saul when he met him on the road to Damascus. By the way, I think it's interesting that you don't have this bit about kicking against the goads in Acts 9 when someone else is telling Paul's story, but when Paul tells his own story, he's like, you better believe this part about the goads. It's very important, all right? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus is saying, Saul, all along, as you have been persecuting and murdering people who are following me, I have been bringing things into your life to have you reconsider your life and reconsider who God is. Little things to slow you down or to stop you. Saul, I've been bothering you to change your direction, to save your life. And in all of those little bothers that I brought into your life, you've been kicking me away, swatting me like a fly. Notice, Jesus calls him Saul twice. To say someone's name twice before you address them means that it's a heartfelt address. So Jesus later would talk to one of his good friends who was missing the point of his presence. She thought Jesus wanted her to be busy serving him, but he wanted her first to sit down and learn from him and be with him. And he got her attention by saying, Martha, Martha. When his heart was breaking for the people of Jerusalem, he called out to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And when he died on the cross, he cried out to his father, my God, my God. To say something, say someone's name twice is to say it with deep feeling. It's a way to call somebody, call to somebody that you are in a deep relationship with, someone you love very much. It's a way for them to hear your desperation for them. So let's talk about what may have been bothering Saul and what might be bothering you today. Just before Saul meets Jesus, he is a part of killing Stephen, who was a young servant of the early church. Here's the account in Acts 7, just before this. It says, they dragged Stephen out of the city and they began to stone him. 
And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Now I want you, in that Stephen's dying and saying these things, imagine being Saul, agreeing to put Stephen to death. But Stephen, instead of cursing or crying out about his own mistreatment, preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts. He shares about Jesus' love and what Jesus did on the cross and what he's inviting everyone to in his resurrection. And then he dies just as Jesus did. He entrusts himself to Jesus and praying for the forgiveness of his enemies. Now think about how that haunts Saul as he watches this. Forgiveness. Someone's forgiveness of you can absolutely melt you. Day after day, after he left that event, he had to quiet the voice that said, Saul, Saul, you have to reconsider. Did you see the way that man who followed Jesus died? Did you hear what he said about Jesus being the promised Messiah? The one you say you're looking for? Did you hear the way he said that you were resisting the Holy Spirit? Did you hear him say that you think you've been keeping the law, but all along you've been breaking it? Did you hear him, Paul? You know you heard him. As a Jewish zealot, Saul was meticulous about his law keeping. And so he'll go on in a later letter to the church at Corinth to talk about just how good he was at keeping up appearances, how good he was at covering up his sin, ignoring the call to Jesus to confess his sin and turn around. But until he crashes into Jesus on the Damascus road, he just kicks against the goads. All of those voices of Jesus, he just brushes aside. He finds ways to ignore all the little bothers that Jesus has brought into his life. So Jesus brings him to a crash. Look at verse 3 and 4. He literally knocks him to the ground. He has ignored, Saul has ignored the goads. He has ignored the not so gentle nudges from Jesus. And so Jesus puts him on his rear and directly confronts him about his sin. Now listen, all of us have a status quo. All of us have what a regular day looks like, right? Get up, get ready for work or school, eat breakfast, listen to the teacher, joke around with friends, roll your eyes at the boss, get a few things done, come home, figure out dinner, watch some TV, text a friend. The truth is that when God is bringing spiritual renewal to you, he comes, listen to me, to bother your status quo. To break up the monotony of your life. And it often starts with little moments where you start asking questions like this. See if you recognize this in yourself, because it's a sign that God is pursuing you. You ask yourself little questions like this. Is this all there is? What does my life even mean? Why do I feel so empty when I finally made it to the top? Am I just going to do this same day over and over and over and over and over again until I die? Why can't I ever seem to be happy? Why can't I shake the shame of guilt and guilt for the stuff that I did 10, 20, 30 years ago? Why does it still hang on me? Why can't I seem to forgive people who have wronged me? Why do my relationships always turn out toxic? Maybe you've had a friend, a neighbor, a family member, maybe a movie, a song, a book that has pointed you to search for truth, that has brought those questions up to you. 
But you realize when you start to entertain answering those questions, that will require you to abandon your status quo. You know your life will have to change, and change is scary. You know, even the things that we know are bad for us, sometimes they bring us more comfort than the solution to our problems because at least the pain is familiar while the change, it can be scary to hope because we don't know what that looks like. And so you kick against the goads. You try, to, you try to quiet them. Faith is not easy, especially when people or things you trusted have let you down in the past and you're just afraid of being let down again if you hope for change. So often when God goads us, we kick against those questions that call us into deeper waters because it's just more comfortable to stay with what we know, the status quo, even though we're unhappy with the status quo. So I'm going to give you the three most popular ways to ignore God, all right? Three most popular ways to ignore God. Rebellion, religion, and numbing. In rebellion, when God goads you, you just turn it up a notch. I'll sleep with as many people as I can. I'll fight with people. I'll be a bully. I'll gamble. I'll get high. I'll do what I've always been told not to do. You dig your heels in and say, nobody's going to tell me what to do. With religion, you ignore God by obeying his rules to drown out his call to you. You try to shut him up by saying, fine, I'll do what you want me to do. Just shut up. And so you get lost and you stay lost in the status quo of going to church, singing the songs, saying the words, all in effort to keep God satisfied, or at least your Christian friends satisfied, so they leave you alone. And you know if you can just use the God talk that they'll leave you alone, think you're okay. You give off the appearance of knowing God, but you are actually kicking him away from religion. And then there's numbing. This is a commitment to just turn up the music as loud as you can. It's like when you're in the car and something's not, you hear that sound in the car that you know is not right and you don't want to go to the mechanic, so you just crank up the radio. <laughs> you binge another TV show. You get lost in another no-brainer novel. You eat more. You drink more. You build another house. You buy another car. You shop some more. You get some more Amazon packages, anything to get a quick rush that tells you life is okay, no need to change. The fact is, you can get so used to your day-in and day-out status quo that kicking away the goads of Jesus becomes second nature. Kicking against the goads becomes your status quo. There's always another tournament. There's always another client. There's always another homework assignment that you can give your attention to. In fact, you welcome busyness, even though you complain about it. You welcome busyness because you don't have to sit in the silence of the emptiness that echoes in your life. But a crash is coming. Do you hear me? A crash is coming. Your status quo will be broken by Jesus Christ. Stop kicking against the goads and listen to Jesus. You hear him calling your name, Saul, Saul, David, David, Ben, Ben, Anna, Anna, Sydney, Sydney. He's bothering you. He's cooling you because he loves you. Maybe the crash has already hit you. Love it. Sometimes <laughs> it's an actual car crash that hits you. For John Newton, it was a storm in a ship. 
For Saul, it was the resurrected Jesus that just stepped in front of him on the way to Damascus. Sometimes it's a crash from the addictions that have gripped you. Jesus steps in between you and your rebellion or religion or numbing device of choice. Sometimes the crash is the job that you have been so hard at work at that you have developed your entire identity around and it is suddenly ripped away from you and you don't know who you are anymore. Maybe some of you are on the other side of that crash and you feel like you're groping in the darkness for what next. That brings us to the second thing that happens in a conversion. Point two, District 46, are you ready? Jesus changes you through darkness. You can write that down. Jesus changes you through darkness. When Jesus finally gets your attention, there is a period of darkness that follows, which kind of sounds weird that you don't just jump right into the light. I want you to take a look at Saul after he met Jesus. Look at nine, uh, Acts 9, verse 8 and 9. Literally, things go dark for Saul. Like he is blind for three days. Now, there's a couple of things going on here for Saul. First, Saul has been spending his life climbing the ladder of the Pharisees. So he's become a well-respected religious leader. But blindness is a category of disability that would have represented a kind of religious uncleanness for him, which would have excluded him from temple worship, which means... Saul's reputation, as soon as he goes dark, Saul's reputation is ruined. All that he has built over his life in a moment is gone. Unless the Lord builds the house, he labors in vain that builds it. Second, Saul has moved from a guy who would have led others to a guy who now has to be what? Led around by the hand, like a child completely dependent on someone else for survival. He's been the boss and now Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what to do now, Saul. So this darkness that he's been plunged into has forced him to do two things. And this is the commonality, that the darkness Jesus leads you into, the darkness that he changes you through is this. He has to rethink who he is and he has to rethink his perception of God. He's built his life on religious standards and that is now gone. He's built his life on the certainty of knowing how one is supposed to relate to God. Now look at verse five and six. Now in this darkness, he is asking, who are you, Lord? And the Lord is saying, I'm gonna show you who I am. And through that, I'm gonna show you who you are. I'm gonna redefine you. In the letter that Saul eventually wrote to the Romans, we get a peek into what was likely some of Saul's thinking during this period of darkness, the stuff that he was wrestling with. So I want you to listen to this. We're going to read it and see if it sounds like any wrestling you've ever done. I don't think I've ever done any kind of counseling with anyone where I don't hear something that sounds exactly like this. This is it. Romans 7, he writes about it. For I do not understand what I'm doing because I don't practice what I want to do. Instead, I do what I hate. Listen to the frustration. Listen to the darkness. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Listen to how he's rethinking his religion. He's rethinking the way he read the Bible before. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin is living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my flesh for the desire to do what is good is with me. But there's no ability to do it. I keep failing. For I don't do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it. But it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. 
For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Do you hear the darkness? Do you hear the desperation? Do you hear the way he's rethinking what the Bible says and rethinking what he thinks about himself? In the darkness, Saul wrestles with the fact that the more he tried to do the right thing, keep the law, the more that he read and thought about the standard of God, the more he realized he couldn't live up to the standard. In the darkness, he realized he was a hypocrite, a liar. There are two things that you do in the darkness that follows the crash that show you that God is pursuing you. Number one, you start to look more deeply into yourself. You start to become honest with God about yourself. Like Paul in Romans 7, instead of pretending that he didn't have sin or distracting himself with it with religion or numbing, he finally admits just how nasty he is on the inside. But you don't stop there. Jesus never wants you to take an honest look at yourself just so you get depressed about what you find. He never wants you to stay there. The other thing that happens is you start to crave the truth about God. In Romans 7, Paul is rethinking the way he looked at God's law and he moves it from some external standard to live up to and he takes it down to an inward level. It's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you keep looking at external actions and those are important, but God is interested in your heart and your actions. He doesn't just want you not to murder. He wants you to deeply love others. He doesn't just want you to not commit adultery. He wants you to honor and respect everyone through the way that you think about them, the thoughts that nobody ever sees or hears. Jesus is interested in being the Lord of those two. And you know what happens when in the dark you get down to that level? It gets really scary in there. You ever been in a dark basement in your house? It's really scary down there. Because every single one of us knows how dark our thoughts are sometimes. It feels like there's monsters in there, doesn't it? You realize the monsters lurking in the dark aren't outside of you. You realize you're the monster inside. What a wretched man am I. And that's exactly what Saul realizes about himself in Romans 7, 24. But in the darkness, your focus isn't only yourself. Jesus will never call you to just look at yourself in the mirror all day long. In fact, that's not where God wants you to end up at all. Look at where Saul ends up. Look how he answers the question, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from my wretched self? In the very next verse, he said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. He takes you through the darkness to get you to the peak of his light. When Jesus is pursuing you after the crash, when you finally pay attention and stop kicking against the goads, you will have a period of darkness because you'll have to take an honest look at yourself and that won't be pretty. But take heart. In all of that goading, when you keep wanting God to leave you alone, he wouldn't, would he? And in the darkness, he still won't leave you alone in the darkness. He doesn't leave you alone. But the difference it will be in you. Now you won't want him to leave you alone. Now you'll crave his presence in the dark. Very simply, the darkness after the crash has you reconsider yourself. You see your sin more clearly and you're honest about it and it has you reconsider who God is. You realize that your only hope of being changed into something new is if God forgives you and changes you and he goes back and starts to answer all of those questions that, you, that he was bothering you with before. How can I be happy? How can I be fulfilled? Who am I? What's the point of life? And when you realize those things, that's when the scales fall off. That's when the blinders come off. 
That's when the light starts to pierce the darkness. In the darkness, the Bible starts to become more than a set of rules or some ancient dusty book that's just a part of your tradition. In the dark, the Bible becomes a light to your path. It becomes food to your hunger, drink to your thirst. In it, God reveals himself and he reveals your sin. He shows you a savior waiting to embrace you and make you family, which leads us to the next phase. District 46ers, write this one down. Jesus changes you by an embrace. One of the big mistakes that people often make about faith in Jesus is that we assume that it's primarily an individual or private matter. But I want you to notice something that happens here with Saul. Look at verse four. During Saul's crash, when Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, Jesus asks a very strange question. He says, Saul, Saul, did you notice this? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Now, here's the weird thing. When Saul's running around, Jesus has already died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. Saul was nowhere near Jesus in Jesus's life. So Saul had not been persecuting Jesus. He'd been persecuting Christians. He'd been persecuting Jesus's church. Look at verse five. He says it again here in verse five. Jesus again says, when you persecuted the church, you were persecuting me. It's Jesus' personal identification with the church. And then he tells Saul to get up and go into the city. Why? Well, because, listen to me, you can't embrace Jesus. You can't receive the love and forgiveness that he has had for you with also, without also embracing his people, the church. If Jesus so closely identifies with the church that when people hurt his people, when people persecute his people, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? How in the world can you say, I'll take Jesus, but not Jesus' people? You can't. Jesus does not separate his church from an experience or relationship with him. He always has them together. Jesus died for a people. That's who Saul is going to meet in the city. Jesus doesn't just do this private thing over in the corner with Saul. He takes him to his church. Jesus is saying, if you are ready to embrace me, you are ready to embrace my family. Now let's look at the other side. Look at what Ananias says when Jesus tells him that Saul of Tarsus is on the way and Ananias needs to embrace him and bring him into the church. He says, excuse me, Jesus. (laughs) I love you. And you're great and everything, you know, fully God, fully man. You got lots of good things going on. And I appreciate that. I would just like to make you aware in case you're not. That this man that you want me to go meet. Has been arresting and killing Christians. I'm pretty sure I'm one of those Christians, says Ananias. So I'm not sure if this is very safe. In verse 15, Jesus says, trust me. You're looking at the old Saul, the first John. I'm making him new. He will be my instrument to tell the world the good news that I love them and I'm here to embrace them too. So don't exclude him because of your fear. You hear that church? Don't exclude people who Jesus has made new because you are afraid of them. It's in the very heart of someone coming to know Jesus is that the church can embrace people who confess their sin, repent, and walk with him. 
So Ananias, verse 17, when he sees Saul, look what he does. I don't know if he had to swallow hard when he did this. I don't know like what all the travails he went through, what he had to work through in his mind. But I'll tell you what he does. He steps to the plate and he says, welcome to the family, brother. He embraces him. He welcomes him in. This is like a man that was taken captive on one of John Newton's slave ships coming back around to hug John Newton and call him brother. It's remarkable. But how Jesus makes his love is how Jesus makes his love tangibly known to the world. Notice Jesus doesn't say, now, well, I'm going to go do this over here in the corner. of No, he brings the church in on it. Verse 18, notice it's Ananias' obedience to embrace Saul as family. That is the cause of the scales falling off Saul's eyes. The embrace of the church, the love that says, I love you and forgive you because Jesus loves you and forgive you, that embrace is the end of Saul's darkness. That's what Jesus uses to make the scales fall. I see it happen all the time in our church. We have such a testimony of the love of Jesus that has flown through you to embrace other people in broken places that is finally the thing that makes the scales fall off. That's what brings Saul to fully embrace following Jesus, which he marks with a baptism. Let's talk about baptism for a second. And I'm going to end here. I'm going to cut the fourth point. We'll do it next week. Baptism is a marker. Leanne, you can come on up. It is an outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism is not what saved or changed Saul. It is not a physical act of going in the water and coming back out that did it. God wasn't waiting. No, you do this one thing. No, you, you are saved by faith, by grace, through faith alone in what Christ has done for you. But it is an outward sign of an inward reality and it is extremely important. See, baptism is a sign of a dual embrace. On one hand, for Saul, he's making a statement. Saul is making a statement to the church. He's saying, it's a testimony. I'm following Jesus. I hit the crash. I've been through the darkness. The old me has died like Christ died on the cross to my sin to forgive me. It's buried. And the new me is rising out of the water, rising to life like Jesus resurrected to make a new family and start new creation. I am now a part of that family. I am embracing Jesus fully. As much of me that goes under the water, that's how much of me that belongs to Jesus because now I see how much he loves me. But it's not just a statement from Saul to the church. It's a statement from the church to Saul. This is why as much as possible, I think it's a very good thing to be baptized in front of other Christians. Because you have another Christian baptizing you, you can't baptize yourself. You're always dependent on somebody else to do it. And the church witnesses this to say, like Ananias, yes and amen. We see what Jesus has done for you. We see your embrace of Jesus. And now we love and forgive and embrace you. You are our brother. You are our sister. There's an embrace of the church to the person. There's a church and, and an embrace of the person to the church as both the church and the person are embracing Jesus together. So I'm gonna ask you this this morning. Since the time you embrace Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, since that time, have you been baptized publicly? If not, I wonder if Jesus is calling you to do that today. Put verse 18 back up there, chapter 9, verse 18, that last slide. What? 
I want to invite you to do that today. And maybe you've recognized yourself. And I'm telling you, these stages don't necessarily have to be a specific amount of time. Some of you may have been through like three of these, to all three of these things today in this service. That's possible. And I'll tell you, they don't go away necessarily after you become a Christian. I'll tell you, Jesus will still, by the Holy Spirit, goad you and you'll find crashes and you'll find periods of darkness and you'll find periods of renewal. We've been praying for spiritual renewal for our church for a long time. You know, I've taught you and I practice in my own life what I call the 10 second rule. You know what the 10 second rule is? If I hear the Holy Spirit talk to me, say something, either I'm reading it in the word or like this week, I'll tell you something crazy may make you think I'm a loon, which I am, all right? But I was praying for this service this week in my office, on my floor, like completely laid out, face to the ground. And this voice came in my head as I was praying, talking to the Lord, go to Target. <laughs> what? Go to Target. In my head, I'm kicking against the goad. That, that's dumb. I'm here praying and like preparing a sermon and you're telling me to go to Target. And so I said, I, I brushed aside. Trevor, that's just your head. And so I kept trying. You ever do this before and you just keep trying to get back on track? Okay, let's pray about important things. And I just keep hearing, go to Target, go to Target, go to Target. So I obey the 10 second rule. This is the 10 second rule. If it is reasonable that Jesus might be calling you to do something, if it is reasonable that Jesus is speaking to you, okay, so punch that guy in the face. That's probably not reasonable that Jesus is calling you. And if it's something that I can't obey quickly, okay, I'm not telling you to do this like, you know, uh, move to the 1040 window, okay? I don't want you to like immediately sell your house on the spot. Like you probably need to talk to people about that. But I'm telling you right now, 10 second rule. I'm thinking, this is on Thursday. Okay, I got to boy. all right. Is it reasonable that Jesus would have me go to Target? It's reasonable and our building is a lot closer now. <sighs> I did not want to do this. So I got up, I got in my car, I drove to Target. I'm like, what do you want me to do here? So I'm walking around. I'm, you know, I, I'm looking for cars. I'm, the first thing I think is I'm going to look for, if anybody's crying, that's like an invitation in. I'm going to see if anybody's crying. <laughs> so I'm looking for people. I walk around the store. I'm praying as I walk around the store. And then I'm like, well, I know I'm supposed to get some dog bones from my dog and I'm here. So I might as well go back to that session. So I walk back, get some dog bones. I'm looking as I go up. The whole time, I don't see anybody. There's barely anybody there. It's like, it's like just after it opened, you know, on a Thursday morning. I get my dog bones. I go home. I'm texting Kiva. And I was like, well, I did this stupid thing where I went to Target and I didn't see anybody. And God didn't speak to me and there was nobody there. And she said, maybe he just wanted you to obey. See, it was reasonable. Isn't it, isn't it kind of crazy? We're, I'm sitting here crying over going to Target. <laughs> but here's the point that I'm trying to make. Here's the point I'm trying to make. It was reasonable that Jesus would tell me something. He's God, I'm not. He knows where he wants me. 
Just like he knew John Newton better than John Newton knew himself, he knows me better than I know myself. So by God, if I'm laying on the floor and he tells me to go to Target, I'm going to go, is it reasonable that Jesus, yeah, get in your car, go. Just quit arguing with him and go. Here's what I'm calling you to today. Is it reasonable? Is it reasonable? Have you been kicking the goads against the goads with baptism? We're following Jesus. Is it reasonable that Jesus would call you in this service to get up and go talk to a person standing at the back at the end of this service holding one of those cards? If you're back there, show me you're back there by holding one of these cards. You, you guys have those cards, my baptism counselors? Yeah, there we go. You can look back there at them. Is it reasonable when we stand up to sing that you just go back and you just talk with a person? Even if you're not sure, you just go, you know what? God's been on my mind about this and maybe today is the day. Maybe I need to talk somebody that is it reasonable what Jesus would do? I'm telling you, don't argue with Jesus. In 10 seconds, just do it. Just take the step. You know, the hardest part of getting up early in the morning to work out is actually getting up and going. Once you're there, you do it. Same thing here. The hardest part of getting up to obey Jesus is just getting up to do it. Once you're there, the thing goes smooth. So just talk, that's what I'm asking you to do. Just have a one-on-one conversation with some people that we know and trust in this church about whether or not tonight's the night you should be baptized. Because we're gonna be, we're gonna have a cookout tonight at 4.30. We've already got somebody ready to baptize. The water's gonna be full. Why would you say no to Jesus in this moment if he's calling you? So that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna end right here. And today, maybe you went through all of those phases Maybe you've been kicking against the goads and you went to crash and then even sitting here, you're in darkness. You're like, oh my God, I'm contemplating my life and the Bible and maybe God is different than I thought he was right now. And there's so much to learn. I'm telling you, God does not tell you to learn everything and then come to him. He says, come with me and I'll teach you. I'll show you how to suffer for my name. You don't have to have it all together now. All you have to do is say, Jesus is Lord. I know he died to save me from my sin and I'm gonna trust him because none of the other stuff works. Will you go to him today? And if he's taken you to trust him today, will you embrace him and let the church embrace you through baptism today? All right, I'm gonna gonna pray. Everybody stand up. And right now, you can just start going to those people who are holding those back there and let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness to love us. Thank you for calling us in the darkness to follow you. Thank you, Father that Christ comes to crash into us, that your Holy Spirit goads us, convicts us, that in the darkness you never leave us as we're contemplating the deepest questions of our life and that you call a people to embrace us with your love as we embrace them with our love, as we all together embrace you and we know that you're coming back again to make all things new, which will be a forever embrace, the prodigal coming home, new life, new creation, First John's dead, second John's raised to life. Saul's in the past, Paul's of the future right now in this room. Holy Spirit move. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.